Good morning, Midland Free. Good morning. Welcome here. My name is Jeremy. We're glad that you're worshiping with us today. As we uh, continue in our Advent or our Christmas series on the giver, today's a second sermon. Just to refresh your memory, if you were here last week and if you weren't, here's a quick synopsis and summary. Last week we looked at John 3.16 and basically we said, one of the things that we frequently miss from that passage is that God gave, like God gave, like Christmas is God's thing. God, the Father, started Christmas. It's true that Jesus is the greatest gift, but in enjoying the gift, we don't want to miss the fact that God gave. The gift is designed to drive us to the giver. And so the point, the reason you give a gift to somebody else, the reason God gives us a gift is do the same thing is not just so they get absorbed with that thing, but so that they are driven to the giver. So we're taking this look at Christmas in this way. We're saying, Hey, here is, here is God. This is what he's trying to do. This is what he's like. This is what he wants for you. This is how it affects your life. Today, we're going to move from the giver to the giver's way. We're going to say, so what is he like then? I mean, how does he work and how does he function? And really, um, what I want to start with is basically this simple assumption about his way. And it's coming from, so today's sermon title, I think there's a slide here, is the giver's way. And then... It's coming from this verse, really, which is James 4, 6. I think this is a good summary of it, but it's not just this verse. But this is just sort of like a thesis statement. This is the giver's way. This is the way that God functions. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is just the way God is. I mean, there's really no simpler way to say it. If you follow that theme throughout all of Scripture, you will see that repeated over and over again. I could go through verse after verse after verse this morning showing you how God absolutely loathes and hates pride and how he rewards and looks down upon and loves and treats with tender affection those who are downcast or contrite or humble in spirit. This is the way he is. It's, if, if you want to be at odds with God, a good way is to be prideful. If you want God on your team, if you want to be together with him in cahoots or in sync, then what you need to do is be humble. So naturally, therefore, if I'm a God-fearer or if I'm a God-follower, my desire then is to have him bless me. My desire is to have his hand of blessing upon my life and moving things forward. As a result, what do I want? I want to become more humble. So the question I'd like to ask today then and answer through this sermon, in particular this text on Mary and her reaction to the angel's announcement, is how can I, how can we, how can we together, how can I as an individual become more humble? That's the question I want to get at. With today's sermon for our text, I want to encourage you with it too. It's actually a way to build up our faith, not just tear us down and make us feel yucky. But this is an encouragement. How can I have God's hand of blessing upon my life? So we're going to do that in three steps. Here are the three steps of today's sermon. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. 
or you can just download the slides later if your handwriting is as bad as mine. But it is this. The first is the question. This is the question that this sermon seeks to answer. How can I be more humble? And then we're going to give a couple examples of the of perfect humility today. And then we're going to say, okay, so I'm asking this question. Here's the example. Now, how do I do it? How do I carry out that answer in my life? So how can I? A couple good examples and then um, the answer for us. But before we jump into the first example, I want to give play a little bit of myth buster here. And the reason is, is because I think when if you're like me, when you think of humility, you probably think of a variety of approaches. And you perhaps you're thinking, okay, pastor, this is going to be a sermon on humility. I know what's going to happen. I'm going to go away today feeling, oh, woe is me, ho-hum, poor us. But that's actually the exact opposite of how I want you to feel today. So let me debunk then a few of the myths about humility. And the first is this, is that if you want to be more humble, you can just beat it into your head. I mean, that's the way we guys or whoever is type A driven personalities do it. Like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to grip my teeth and bear it. I'm humble now. I'm humble. Oh, that. Okay, I'm humble. (laughs) And we're just going to go through life being more humble. Come on. Be more humble. Be it, be it. But the problem is, is I've tried that, and it doesn't work. It really doesn't. Another one, perhaps, you could do, and a lot of people try this often, is they remind themselves of their lowliest state. Oh, woe is me. You know, look at how great God is and how small I am, and therefore I'm just, I'm not that valuable. Woe is me. But what ends up happening then is as you do that, if you adopt that mindset, then inevitably you move down this path of self-deprecation or self-criticism. And any time you criticize yourself, listen, that's a sin. It's just as much of a sin for you to criticize yourself as for you to criticize somebody else. You are made in the image of God. Stop it. Don't do that. I like you. And God loves you. Don't criticize yourself. That's wrong. Stop. That's not the way you become more humble. That's the way you destroy yourself. And that's not what God wants. He doesn't want you to beat yourself up. He wants you to be part of his plan. Don't criticize yourself. So that's not it either. So we're not going to beat it into our head. We're not going to remind ourselves of our lowly estate. What if I just adopt this sullen and sunken attitude and I'm miserable all day long, well, you're going to end up depressed. And that's what God doesn't want that either. So how about this? Let's, I mean, let's say, and there are people who do this. I've met them. You know, I've interacted with them. Let's, let's say, okay, we are really sincere in our faith and we've decided that we can't beat it into our head. We can't just remind ourselves of how lowly we are. We can't adopt the sunken attitude. So perhaps we're just going to have to go to extreme measures. We're going to do our very best to sell everything we have. We're just going to liquidate everything. And then after we've sold it all, the only possessions we're going to have is a robe and a pair of sandals. We're going to be just like Jesus. But we know we're still not like Jesus. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go overseas to some holy site and we're going to crawl uphill on our knees and beat our back and throw dirt and ash on our head. And then maybe if God sees that humility and how much we've just destroyed ourselves and we get to the top, 
then maybe after fasting and prayer, he'll finally give us a vision and we'll hear a word from the Lord. Maybe I can produce that. The reality is, is that many of people have tried. I haven't and failed at that as well. So the question then is how? How can we become more humble if even the most extreme of measures aren't enough? How can we be truly humble? Ready for the first example? It's Jesus. Jesus. You're like, hey, wait, that's not fair. He was perfect. He got it all right. You can't really, I mean, Jesus default every time. Come on, pastor, that's not fair. Well, let me start with the best, and then I'll show you how ordinary, everyday people can do it just like him. In fact, what we find is this, is that even for Jesus, life was pretty hard. Even for Jesus. Let me give you some examples. I don't know what you're facing in life. No doubt there are many struggles that we all have, and we probably all had all of the struggles to one degree or another. But let's start with a common one. How about family crisis? Whether it's you or someone you're related to or a grandchild or, you know, a relative or whatever, everyone's been through some sort of family crisis. What about Jesus? Oh, yeah. What do you think his friends at school called him when they found out his mom was pregnant and she wasn't married? How about when his brothers and sisters thought he was crazy? What about the fact that we hear of Joseph when Jesus was little, but then after that we don't hear anything? Most commentators think at some point his dad died. And he was raised by a single mom. I mean, this guy had it rough. His family was no, you know, whatever, Windsor Castle. This was difficult. Jesus had family crisis all over the place. What about finances? Perhaps he was a little bit better situated. Of course not. You know who know, know about Jesus? No, he was born into a very impoverished situation. And from there, he only got poorer. By his last days, they had literally stripped everything away from him. Anything that was of value was stolen from him. He had nothing. Okay, well, what about a career? Perhaps he had prestige and fame and, you know, respect. And he could give up all that other stuff. Well, he did for a while. In fact, crowds were following him and everyone was like, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And guess what? Downsized in a serious way. Next week, they change from Hosanna, Hosanna to crucify, crucify. His career from our standards went really fast. He was moving up quick. He was meant to be the next in charge. And yet, boom, down he goes and becomes a scapegoat and gets blamed for everything. So therefore, not only did his career crumble, but he also experienced injustice in the most profound of ways. We get upset when somebody cuts us off when we're driving down the road. Why? They took my spot. They took my parking spot. They My, my reservation was before them. How come the waiter just seated them before me? That's not fair. Injustice. And we get upset at that. It's tiny. Jesus was absolutely perfect, and yet he took 
literally, ready? Here's a theological joke. He took the fall for everybody. Okay, thank you. Appreciate that. Ask her afterwards. He took everything, all the fall, all the sin, all the bad stuff that was ever done on himself, even though he'd never done it. Injustice, finances, career, family. What about health? Health's a big one we all experience. I'm like, what's going to hurt today? I don't know. It's going to be my foot, my back. I don't know. Something's going to hurt. Jesus? And he was crucified, he was whipped, he was beaten, he was spit upon. He had health issues, I'd say. Humiliation, he naked in front of everybody. I mean, you just go down the list and you can say, yeah, pretty much he experienced all the difficulties in life. Okay, I get that. I agree, Pastor. He was definitely suffering. He struggled. But he was Jesus. So... What's the big deal? I mean, didn't he just use his superpowers to overcome all that stuff? I don't have those resources. Jesus is like, you know, God and stuff. Couldn't he just like, fix it? Well, that's what Satan tried to get him to do. Hey, turn those stones into bread. Show me your superpowers. And Jesus is like, no thanks. That's not how I am to get through this life. In fact, the way in which Jesus got through this life, here is something very important for you to hear, church. The way in which Jesus got through this life was not using his superpowers. Yeah, those came out on occasion, but for specific reasons. Not for him. They weren't for him. For somebody else. How did he get through this life in the same exact way that you and I are supposed to get through life? The same. The exact same. When those struggles come and when that suffering happens and we're experiencing the difficulty, we get through it the same way Jesus did. It's not by superpowers. Instead, it's by faith. That's why in the New Testament it says, I got this verse later, I'll fix it for next sermon, but it says, this is the victory that overcomes the world. It's our faith. Our faith. That's the victory. Well, whoa, hang on, pastor. I mean, come on, for real. Faith? What is faith? I mean, isn't that just like, uh, ready? Isn't that just like this? It's like, whoo, faith. Fluff. No substance. Ooh, I could get one in the cup, maybe. <laughs> Hopefully not. No substance, just pie in the sky, fluffy stuff. What is faith? Here's the thing, if faith doesn't have any substance, if it doesn't have any meat, if it's not grounded in something that's for real, then it is just pie in the sky and it's worthless. I am not preaching at you this morning that you should believe just in belief itself. There is no magic in magic. The reality is, is real faith, real stuff, has to have some significant substance behind it. Even though it is something we don't see, it has a concrete and real thing. So, what I want to do here is hopefully illustrate that. That's why I stole some of my children's toys. I'll return them borrowed. Borrowed their toys. They know that these are gone. At least they will this morning. (laughs) But, no, I, I asked them, but... Here's the thing. Jesus faced his difficulties, all of them, the same way we're going to. 
And it's this. Here's how Jesus had to face his difficulties. When stuff came his way, what Jesus had to do is this, is he had to say, there are basically three pillars of God's character that we cannot um, deny. Let me show you what those are. I'm going to pull out. These are my attempts to make three pillars. This is the extent of the creativity of my building. That's why I did not become an architect. All right, so three pillars. I'm not representing God as an idol. Let's just imagine this is God's character. There are three pillars of God's character. Here are the three pillars of God's character that I would say. I would say, number one, obviously, if God is God, if he is God, if he is God, then he's sovereign, right? Like, he's God. There is no other. He's in control. Everything goes his way no matter what. It's his. He's God. He's sovereign. That's one. But what we think about our God, in contrast to many of the other imaginary gods, not only is he sovereign, but he's good. He's really, really good. In fact, all those things that we associate with him and with goodness, like mercy, love, compassion, beauty, grace, joy, all of those things, I guess, I would put into this big category called goodness. You could call it something else. I don't care what you call it. Just think, sovereign and good. All the stuff that we call good, God is. Anything that is, God is the definition of goodness. So anything that's good, that's what God is. So you have sovereign and good. But I have one more thing over here that I think is absolutely essential. This is the tangible demonstration for us. And there's, I, obviously, this is not color-coded to represent. Colors are, mean nothing to me. These are just the blocks I had, okay? So it's not that one color is better than another or anything like that. It's just the blocks I had. So here's another color up here. And what I think this other thing is, is the resurrection of Jesus. In other words, you have God's sovereignty as your picture of who God is. And you also have God's goodness. And those would be really cool. But they would just be up there with God. But the thing about the resurrection is that it brings all of this down to us. Because the Bible says that just like Jesus was raised from the dead, so too will we be raised. So all of God's goodness, all of God's power, all of his sovereignty, all of his control are sort of, you know, injected into that moment. They're piled down into the resurrection. So you put those three things together and you hold on to them firmly. And then you can say, yeah, through anything that comes my way, I'm going through. Why? Well, if I'm looking at my life, I'm thinking about the stuff in my life. I'm not necessarily looking at this neat, tidy little building over here. Instead, I'm looking at a bunch of little blocks. These are Legos. You've probably seen some of these before. They're just piled in here. They're probably supposed to be something at some point, but once it gets broken and taken apart and I don't have the instructions, I don't know what they are. I can't understand this. Just a mess of our Legos. And all my only hope is I don't step on them in the middle of the night. Here they are. Legos. And if I'm looking at my life and my circumstances 
family crisis, finances, health, career, identity. All I see is this. I just see blocks that don't make sense. That's it. I get nowhere. But if I take my eyes off of this mess and I look at this clear construction, these three pillars, God's sovereignty, God's goodness, and Jesus' resurrection, then what I in fact see is this picture of something that's clear and concrete and solid. And that is the substance of my faith. My faith is not these little fluffy things that float through the air and go away. That's not faith. That's a Hallmark channel. That means nothing. It's a short buzz and it's done. And my faith is not in my circumstances because they're a mess. But my faith instead is in the concrete pillars of the character and goodness of God. Did you hear that, church? The character and goodness of God. In other words, here's what's going to happen. When Jesus goes through these things in his life, okay, so he's going to be experiencing some pretty bad stuff. He has to say, I truly believe God is good. And I truly believe God's in control. Even though I could have, pretending to be Jesus, only pretending here. Even though Jesus could have been born into a wealthy family, I was born into poverty. We can't control the family we're born into. We have to accept that. We have to believe in God's sovereignty in this path for our life. Jesus has to affirm the same thing. Jesus didn't even have a spot to be born in. But he has to believe that that was God's sovereign plan for him. To fill the prophecies of it of old. Well, Jesus experienced injustice and, and suffering. And yet, if he would have looked at his circumstances, he would have said, this is not good. Therefore, God is not good. But he has to look beyond his circumstances, the, the difficulties that's happening to him, and look at this right here. And when he looks at that, regardless of this, he still says, yeah, God is good. Because I'm believing in God's goodness and God's control. And over and over again, as you read his life story, what do you hear him affirming? These things. He affirms them. That's why when his disciples come to him, he's like, yeah, yeah, the son of man's going to suffer. But in three days, he will rise. See, because of God's goodness, because of God's sovereignty, then God will not let his son Receive injustice forever. Instead, God will vindicate him. And the resurrection is his vindication. That's when God comes and said, Ah, see this? You were wrong. This same Jesus, whom you crucified, as Peter says, was actually my son. And I'm going to raise him from the dead and seat him at my right hand so that he shall rule forever and ever. Jesus had to affirm those things all throughout his life. He had to believe in God's righteousness, his goodness, his control, his mercy, his love, his justice, and his vindication. He had to believe in God's character and his purposes for his life. And guess what? That's exactly what we have to do. We got to believe in God's character and his purposes for our lives. We have to affirm that. 
Just like Jesus, by faith, every single day. The faith is not the faith in faith itself. The faith is not the faith in magic. The faith is the faith in the character and purposes of God. And that he will vindicate us. So when you experience injustice, you say, okay, I can experience that. I can accept that, knowing that God will vindicate me. If you experience family crisis, you know I'll be part of the family of God. And someday, forever and ever, he will fix things. And I'll be with my brothers and sisters and him forever in paradise. If you experience a lack, you know that he will provide. If you experience suffering, you know that he will restore you because he's good and he wants your eternal flourishing. That's how God is. And that's how we need to be as well. We need to believe by grace through faith in that. Now, let me give you another example. Before we run out of time, since it is a Christmas sermon, we need to get to this Luke 1 thing. Here it is. Here's an example in real life of somebody this happened to. Her name is Mary. It says in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Here's some slides. Just follow along. I'm going to cruise through since we don't have much time. Um, It says this. In the sixth month, the angel of Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Just some no-name place up north. Like the UP, you don't know him. To a virgin, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel said to her, Behold, virgin Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, today that's troublesome. But back then, that could be a death sentence. According to the Mosaic law, if she is found guilty of infidelity, she's supposed to be stoned. If she is not married and she's having a baby, there's an issue there. And as a result, an angel comes to her and tells her this. I'm thinking if I'm married, there's a lot of things going through my mind right now. Like, uh, (laughs) are you sure? I'd rather not. I can think of better ways you could accomplish this, Lord. Why do you have to go through me? You know, the reality is, God, if... You'll think this through, you'll understand that I've been faithful to you. And yet everyone's going to think I'm unfaithful if this happens. I could be divorced, I could be stoned. The best I can hope for is that I will be rejected and sent away to live with my parents in shame for the rest of my days with no means of providing for myself. Is that good? Is that sovereign? That's a mess. But you see, here's the thing about Mary. She's not looking at this. She knows and understands the character of God to such an extent that whatever crisis is introduced into her life, she is firmly placing her faith in the character and purposes of God. So she's saying, Lord, you are good. Lord, you are in control. And I believe by grace through faith that whatever happens to me is going to work together for my good. And so I'm going to believe that you will vindicate me. Even if everyone else treats me poorly. So what does Mary believe? Well, I think what she actually believes is this. Instead of going through that mental picture I just provided for you of all the bad things that could happen. I think she's thinking like this. Lord, if everyone else rejects me, you will accept me. Lord, 
If I can't come up with a means of providing for myself, I know that you are Jehovah Jireh and you will. Lord, if everyone else assumes I am unfaithful, you know my heart, God, and I have been faithful to you. Lord, if everyone wants to shame me, you're going to honor me. Despite, Lord, if I am condemned to live a life of perpetual virginity and singleness and shame, I will not experience loneliness, but the continual companionship of your ever-present and always faithful love. Lord, I know who you are, and you're not bad, and you are in control. And as a result, Lord, you're good. And when you think like that, and something bad happens, then you can be humble. Humility, here's the secret, church. Here is the secret of humility. Secret of humility is the same as salvation. It's by faith. By faith, the secret of humility is faith. Because you believe in God, in his goodness, in his control, then you can lay your life down knowing that he will raise it up. You can't lay your life down any other way. It's not worth it. You know, to give up everything, why? If there's no payback, I'm not interested. But if you truly believe by grace through faith that when you give it up, God will give it back, then it's all good. I hear people say this stuff all the time. I can't figure it out. People say things like, it's all good. It's all good. I'm looking at them. I'm like, no, it's not. What's wrong with you? What are you talking about? That's not all good. That's a mess. I'm not going to sugarcoat it and fluff over it and say, that's all good. That's not. That's bad. But because of Jesus, because of his death, burial, and resurrection, because we are brought into the family of God, then what is all bad can be made all good. You can lay your life down. Jesus was able to leave heaven and glory and give it all up. Why? Because he believed the Father would raise him. If the Father wasn't raising him, he's probably like, no thanks, I'm good right here. But because he's believing by faith that God the Father will come through, he goes down. When Mary is informed that she's going to be pregnant and could be ostracized and killed, she's believing that God will raise her. Look at what she says in Luke chapter 1 verse 38. She says, behold, Luke 1 38, here's a slide. It says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me as your word. That is perfect humility. Everyone always goes to Mary and says, here's perfect humility. Why? How can she be perfectly humble? By faith. Because she believed. Look at what the angel says to her in verse 39 and following. So Mary gets this announcement. She accepts it. She doesn't reject it. She doesn't argue with it. Instead, she runs to tell her relative Elizabeth, It says, Mary arose and went with haste in the hill country. She remembered the house of Zechariah, entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary. Mary was filled with the Holy Spirit. And Elizabeth 
exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed is she who... What? What was it? Believe. She didn't say, Blessed is she who is perfect. Mary wasn't perfect. Mary was no different than the rest of us. A sinner saved by grace. She needed Jesus just as much as we do. She didn't say, blessed is Mary who like (laughs) never experienced sin or never got anything wrong. She's like, blessed is the one whose God's favor is upon them. Why? Why is God's favor? Because she believed. She believed. And she didn't believe in some fluff. Fluff was not going to cut it for her there in the manger. (laughs) That was not going to work. She believed in the substance and the concrete reality of the character and purposes of God. And therefore, she, like her son, can say, not my will, but yours. I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me as you will. Mary understood the character of God. And we need to as well. So that's basically my charge to you today, church. Here's the answer, and I'll I'll read it out. And you'll see it in her song, her song of praise here in a minute. But when we need to know how to be more humble, what's the answer? The answer is the belief. The belief in what? In the character and purposes of God. In his sovereignty and his goodness. Character is his goodness. Sovereignty is his purpose. And that he will raise us up. He will raise us up. We lay our lives down. God will take care of it. If you don't believe that, you can't be humble. It won't work. You can try to beat it into yourself. Oh, I'm going to be humble. It's not going to work. You can try to sell everything you have. It's not going to work. It's only going to work if you truly believe that God will raise you up. Then you can lay your life down. Mary understood the character of God. Let me show you that in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 and following. Listen to how she describes God's character. This is who God is to Mary. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and I rejoice in the Spirit of God, my Savior. She knows that He will save her. He's a Savior. For He has looked on the humble. This is the giver's way. This is the way He does. He opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. The state of his servant. For he who is mighty and sovereign has done great things. He is good and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has great strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He fills the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, in remembrance of his mercy. If you're struggling right now, church, I want to encourage you, man. If you're upset, there's something in your life that is not working, that's the case for all of us at some point. I mean, that's the case for me daily. There's something that's not going right. If I feel something in my spirit like, oh, why aren't my kids? Or, ooh, why isn't this house thing? Or, oh, why... What that means is, I'm not trusting in the sovereignty or goodness of God at that point. So I believe God is good. I know that he's going to work this out. If 
I believe he's in control, I know it's going to be okay. But anytime I'm worried about any of that other stuff means that I'm no longer looking at this, but I'm messing with this. And that's not where I want to be. I want to be in a spot where I can focus on God's goodness and God's control every day of my life. And then I can lay it down, knowing by faith that he'll raise it up. Father, we thank you and praise you for your only son, Jesus, who laid his life down. We thank you for Mary, who's willing to go through all of that. Lord, we suffer and we struggle and we react wrong. I mess up. I don't get it right. I get discouraged in my heart of hearts, my spirit. It it cries out within me and I wonder why all of this. I pray, God, in those moments when things don't feel right or look right or seem right, I would not look at those things, but instead I would look at you. I would see your goodness your sovereignty, Lord, and believe in your character and purpose for my life. By grace through faith, you will raise us up. In Jesus' name, amen.